Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. It's so good to be together, share these moments where we meet and we chat and we share in the mystery of community because when you think about it, there's all kinds of reasons that people come together. There's bad sports teams like the Oilers that need some support and there's, yeah, thought there might some, wow, some literal anger there. Anyways, there's always, yeah, Dan, yeah, okay. There's causes, there's causes to engage, people gather around those and of course there's good debates to be had about our city's potential Olympic bid that's coming up, for example, and people meet each other around all different kinds of things. And part of the mystery that we affirm here at Commons is that our gathering here actually catches us up in something far grander and far older and far more beautiful than we could ever conjure up on our own. And for all of that grandness and beauty, this mystery is actually encountered in really basic, simple ways. Like some of the, the smiles that you shared with somebody that you maybe just met or you were reacquainting yourself with or in asking someone without any shame what their name is for the second week in a row. This is what we have to do at Coffee Breaks. That's just a function of community. And then we share coffee and we trade stories and we do this in the name and in the hope that we would be changed if ever so slowly and graciously because we are giving ourselves to God's goodness and then extending that to each other. So thank you for doing that significant thing by sharing together today. And with that said, I want to make a couple of quick notes about some broader community pieces here as we get going today. First of all, a few weeks ago, we mentioned that the Inglewood Community Association here needs some help every fall to clean up the leaves that end up all over the place. And some of you may have seen this week on our Inglewood Parish page on Facebook that with the snow melting, we seem to maybe be getting a window to help them do this. So here's what we're going to do. This coming Saturday, just for a couple hours in the early afternoon, we're going to rake, we're going to collect, and help out this group that hosts us here in this space each and every week. And we're going to have some hot chocolate, some snacks for anybody who wants to come be involved in that. Um, If you're interested in helping out, maybe even after you attend the prayer event that we mentioned during our uh, announcement piece there, we'd love if you head over to our Inglewood Facebook page, click on the link there to sign up so we make sure we've got enough snacks for everybody because that's going to be vital. And hopefully it's going to be warm enough to do this, but it will be super fun regardless of how it plays out and we hope that you can join us. And then secondly, I want to mention something else too, that one of the values that we have here at Commons is how honesty, passion, and curiosity about Jesus has become central to who we are as a community. And while those things shape the way that we teach and maybe the way that we let scripture shape our lives on Sundays, we also want to, as a community, we want to find ways to encourage and provide resources for you in the mix of all your living which is why we now have a small uh, selection of books available for you back at the Connection Center there. We've had a bookshelf at our Kensington Parish for a couple of years now, and we wanted to bring some semblance of that here because these are books that we think can help spark the right kinds of reflection for you, but they often also are tied to a recent series or uh, a thought that we've been working through as a community. Something like Richard Foster's book on prayer, which I have a couple copies of there back there, which is something that some of 
you might want to pick up as we're coming out of our series on prayer that we started this fall together. So either way, you're welcome to sign those books out for free, to read it, and then bring it back so that someone else in our community can benefit from it as well. So take advantage of that if you haven't already in the past at some point. Which brings us to the business at hand today, where we're going to pick up week two of our anchor series this fall, just simply called Joseph. And last week, Yelena, who's part of our teaching team and staff here at Commons, she got the ball rolling for us by looking back at some of the themes that we've considered in previous years. See, every fall we come back to the Hebrew Bible, which is this diverse collection of texts at the beginning of our scriptures. And we pick a character to focus on, and then we spend several weeks delving into the wide and expansive stories of that character. And often these characters provide a foundation for the traditions and culture and an understanding of those things, helping us understand the life of Jesus that came several hundred years later. And this is why we look briefly at the lives of Abraham and Jacob last time, two of what we call often the patriarchs, which is just another word for the fathers of the Jewish tradition. And central to these two guys' stories is the way that the divine is pictured. See, the poetry in the early chapters of Genesis shows God as creator and as sustainer and as judge. But then things change and we see the divine moving from being this sort of presence or force in creation. And instead we see this force initiating connection and friendship and relationship with this guy named Abraham, promising to make him into a nation and promising that the great healing that the world always needs would come through his family. And Yelena did a wonderful job of describing how the earliest Hebrew scriptures begin to imagine God as calling these characters from somewhere. And then inviting us to consider how just maybe the divine might still be working like that in us. Where we begin to see spiritual life and progression through the metaphor of a journey. And where we start to recognize all of the places that we've come from and the places and things we've come through to this moment. Maybe in a search for meaning, but then also perhaps in the ways that truth and light have a way of transporting us and moving us along. Maybe that's something we've experienced. Which is why then, this character named Jacob and his character arc in Genesis can provide some amazing material for our journey. We looked at Jacob last fall, if you want to go and check that out on our podcast. And we see Jacob as the protagonist in God's story. And as the protagonist, much like in our stories, Jacob has a tendency to manipulate and to deceive and to wound other people. Just basic self-sabotage. He was really good at it. But then we see how ultimately... Jacob grapples with the great mercy that is ever and always present. And in the aftermath of that literal wrestling, he finds that being close to the divine has left him limping. But then also that he's been renamed and renewed and invited further into the mystery of what it means to be known to God which is an experience as we look at this ancient story that some of us might begin to catch sight of in our own living. Our living with its twists and turns, but also its monotony and its normality, complete with mistakes and problems and great reversals. 
Things that over time we discover as the building blocks of God's transformation in our story. Now, today we're going to turn our attention to the beginning of the Joseph narrative, which we're going to walk together in a, in a second. But first, let's pray together as we get going. Oh, great God, you are our presence, you are light, and you are ever-present comfort. And there are no words that we can use, and there is no liturgy that we can pick up that could ever contain you. And so in this moment, we choose to slow ourselves and to pay attention and to gently hold this moment and the grace that it offers us. It's a grace that's always near, whether we can sense it or not, which is why we ask simply that you would help us to see today to see your patient work in us, to see your creative force that holds our world, to see your tender character that reaches to those around us who are heavy and broken and alone. We confess that you know our need today and we ask, teach us to know your great love that fills and covers and overcomes all. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right, we're going to jump straight into things today, where at the beginning of Genesis 37, we learn that Jacob, who was this guy named Joseph's father, he lived where his father had stayed, in the land of Canaan. And if you remember from the story of Jacob, the story of Abraham, one of the key features of God's promise to him was related to land and place. More specifically, God calls Abraham from the time and places that he had known and where he had always been and where he was likely to always stay, and God invites him to move. And the story goes that Abraham does this and eventually comes to what we know now as Israel and Palestine. Where in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God promises to give Abraham's descendants that land. And this is a primal and mythic narrative that runs throughout the Hebrew scriptures. That God's people belong in a space. That this land belongs to them. Which is why at the beginning of Jacob's, or I'm getting these guys' names mixed up. At the beginning of Joseph's story, the narrator reminds us that his father Jacob was living in the land where his father Isaac had stayed, this land that God had promised them. And what's intriguing is that our English translations of this story miss some of the nuance of the Hebrew terminology here because, see, when it tells us that Jacob lived where his father had stayed, what it's saying is that Jacob settled where his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham had sojourned. And fair enough, sojourn is not a word we throw around very much. But basically what it means is that Abraham and Isaac lived their lives in flux. They moved around. They were like temporary residents. They were often just passing through. And this subtle vocabulary distinction is significant, I think. I mean, on one hand, it might just be telling us that Jacob inherited some land and wealth from his father and his scheming and shrewd business dealings finally set him up as a sheep mogul and now his family was affluent enough to be part of the surrounding society. 
where his father and his grandfather had had to move around to find food and water to support their livelihood, perhaps Jacob has finally found some long-term security. But on the other hand, I think this is a beautiful hint here about all the kinds of living that are included in God's story. Because as we keep reading, we might be tempted to think that God's primary effort is to settle the Hebrew people. And by extension then, we might extract from that some model for our own lives where our trajectory is always up and to the right on the graph. Where we believe that the work of the divine will always bring security and resolution and settledness to us. But that's not the best way to read this, I think. Because the entire story of God's connection to God's people begins with an invitation to move. And with the call to leave something. And with the wild excitement of finding newness on the journey. And we will see this in the story of Joseph as we move through it. There's travel, there's distance, and we see the heroes of the narrative actually leave the land that God had promised because there wasn't any food there anymore, which is curious. And then if we go past the story of Joseph into the history of the Exodus and the desert wanderings, and then God's people, they return to Canaan to the kingdom of the great hero David. And then they lose that kingdom and they go into exile and then they come back to Canaan again. We see in all this moving around that there's this curious theme appearing. And it's one that I think can encourage us. Because have you ever felt like your life isn't settled? Maybe you've been pursuing career and not advancing as quickly as you thought. Or maybe just the idea of career is difficult because you're still courageously trying to know yourself and find work that fulfills you and feeds you. Or or maybe there's something that you've been seeking. Maybe it's a relationship of some kind or peace in your spiritual life or even a sense that you are making a significant difference. And it feels like in all these things there's no stability Like you're always just passing through. You're never able to get established. And if you find yourself in a place like that today, I hope you can give yourself space over the next few weeks as we work through the story of Joseph because at its core isn't a message that life is always moving from places of chaos toward resolution or that God's presence in Joseph's life always sees him well situated. No, if we look closely, we see that the divine is as much involved in the passing through as in the finally getting there. Which is why if you feel like you've been moving through life but not arriving, or you've been searching for clarity and not being able to find it, or maybe recently your circumstances have changed, and where you used to feel secure and settled, now you're at a loss for how God could possibly be at work in the craziness of your life. Perhaps you could give yourself some space to just live where you live and to trust like in Jacob's life and Joseph's as we'll come to see. The ambiguity of our journeys isn't indefinite. It never is. And in fact, it's not always that bad because in time you'll realize that peace and settledness were never meant to be attached to place. And you'll come to find that the mystery of spiritual life is in finding that you've been brought to a new space through moving 
discovering and changing along the way. Now, we're already well into things today, and we haven't begun to sunk into Joseph yet. And his story actually begins right after this reference to where Jacob, his father, chose to live. Where we read that Joseph, when he was 17, he took his place in the family livestock business. And this just meant that he spent his time with the flocks, with his half-brothers. And we learn that on one occasion, Joseph comes back to his father Jacob with a bad report, the text says, about his brothers. Which might not seem like a big deal. I mean, I deal with at least half a dozen daily instances of my kids fighting and then telling extravagant stories about the evils done to them while carefully admitting the way that they were just choking their sister, which is a true story from Friday. (laughs) Anyway, we'll come back to this idea in a second. But first, we need to look at why this tattling was such a big deal. Because as most of us know, either through our own experience of loving and simultaneously despising our siblings or seeing it play out in children either that are our own or that we teach in some way, we see this all the time. Kids fight. They're nasty to each other. But what we learn is that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. All of his children were born to four different women over a long period of time, and Joseph was actually born later in Jacob's life to his favorite wife, Rachel. And so we learn that as a sign of affection for Joseph, Jacob had an ornate coat made for him, which is a curious piece of Bible trivia because everyone knows that Joseph's coat had many colors, and depending on who you talk to, you might even learn that it was a technicolor coat. But what's interesting is that this reference to color isn't actually derived from the Hebrew, but from the Greek and the Latin translators of the manuscripts who didn't know what to do with the terms here. It's clear enough that we're talking about a long coat or a robe, but the adjective used to describe it is a little ambiguous, with scholars thinking that it might refer to a long-sleeved robe of some kind, and we know that at the very least it marked Joseph with distinction. I mean, you have to think about this. If Joseph is effectively wearing a glorified bathrobe all the time, you can see why his brothers may have started to pick on him, right? And the point is that this robe that he's given, whether it was colorful or not, it marked him. It distinguished him. And because his father had had it made, it was a symbol of his father's preference. Which if you're the smallest and the youngest, you can see why this would have bugged his brothers. And the text tells us that Jacob's love for Joseph sparked hatred in his other sons. So much so that the NIV says that they could not speak a kind word of him. Or as Nahum Sarna suggested the terminology here, maybe instead it means that they couldn't stand Joseph's attempts to be friendly to them. Which brings us back to this earlier story where Joseph is working out in the field with his older brothers and he brings a bad report back about them. And what's interesting is that this doesn't appear to be just a case of snitching. Because the Hebrew word translated as report here can just as easily be seen to be the word tale. And it's a word that appears in the Hebrew Bible always with negative connotation in that it's untrue. Which leads some interpreters to think that what Joseph has done is he's misrepresented his brothers. We don't know if the story he's told about them is true or not, but we can surmise that either in including certain details 
or in omitting others, he's cast his brothers in a certain light for his own advantage, which seems totally juvenile and immature, and yet it's such a cautionary tale for the ways that we speak sometimes. I mean, it's not hard to sell a better version of ourselves on our job applications, is it? The process seems wired for these kinds of truth stretching. But what about the ways we talk about our spouse to our friends or our parents? Or we discuss a coworker's actions or their performance review with a managing partner? Or we post on social media about those who are on the other side of the political spectrum from us? And Joseph's story illustrates how when we choose to tell stories with a slant, or to cast others in a poor light just to illustrate our own intelligence, or we disparage someone who is at least as complex and as nuanced as we are, we create the potential for the kinds of offense and hatred that ruin all kinds of lives. And then we end up building walls of resentment so that when we do try to be kind and gentle and friendly, people just can't hear us. They can't receive the good that we want to give them. Which brings us to the crux of our text for today. Because right after learning that Joseph has a tendency to play on his father's favoritism and tell half-truths for his own advantage, we see him stand up at a family gathering and announce, hey guys, guess what, I, uh, I had a dream. And I don't know about you, but for me, my imagination, Joseph's so much like David Brent in the office here. He's totally self-absorbed. He's talking at the camera. He's totally oblivious to how everyone else in the room is rolling their eyes at every word coming out of his mouth. It's both comedic and tragic at the same time. Because Joseph says this, he says, guys, I dreamed we were bundling wheat in the field. And while we were doing that, your stacks of grain, they bowed down to mine. And while Joseph doesn't explicitly claim what the dream means, his brothers see right through it and they sarcastically ask, what, do you think you're going to rule and reign over us? The inference being, of course, who do you think you are, you in your bathrobe? And it's a bit of a chaotic scene. Because even Jacob, his old father, takes exception and he says, hold on a minute, Joseph. That dream may be a little far-fetched. And I imagine this along with the brothers' growing hatred. This was in part because Joseph had a track record of making things up, as we already talked about. And what's crazy is how we can totally relate to the brothers' resentment. Joseph's a punk. He's the favorite. He's privileged through no effort of his own. And now here he is running his own promotion company and talking about how great things are going to be when he's in charge. So you can kind of understand why they're angry. Until it dawns on us that all through the story, as we will see, Joseph's dream is meant to tip us off. And the problem with the sequence isn't Joseph's imagination, the content of it. Because he is going to find himself in places of power. We're going to see that. There does seem to be some divine influence on how his life plays out. Now the problem isn't with the content of Joe's imagination. The problem is how he lives that dream inside him. And then externalizes it into the world. Which is a challenge for all of us, if you think about it. 
Because most of us don't have an experience like Abraham or Jacob, where if our life were a narrative, God shows up and speaks to us, where we have this directive experience of the divine. No, we all have an experience that's way more like Joseph's, where our direction in life and the imagination and energy that drives us forward in it, these things emerge in our dreams, in our slow awakening to who we really are, our strengths, our weaknesses, our skills, and what we can give to the world around us. And one of the things I love about this dream story of Joseph's is how it compares to his father Jacob's story. See, in Jacob's story, his mother receives an oracle in Genesis 25 that Jacob will one day rule over his older brother. God's telling us what's going to happen. And then later in Genesis 28, God appears to Jacob and tells him that he won't be alone and that he'll eventually get home safely. He gets these clear directions for his life. But where in Jacob's story, God shows up and speaks and the voice shapes the story, here in Joseph's story, all we get is the overamped dream of an entitled kid. Or is that what it is? Because Walter Brueggemann notes that Joseph's dream functions like an oracle or a message from God, even when the narrator and Joseph don't make that claim. We're going to see that God will work in and with the content of this dream that Joseph's telling everybody about, which is an intriguing place for us to enter the story for ourselves. And a place maybe where we could pause and ask how can I dream well? And this is a, a powerful question if we allow ourselves, as the story hints, to believe that divine power and creativity are at work in the things that are closest to our hearts. Because maybe you've carried some idea or inclination for a while, and you've tried to dismiss it, but it has persisted in your imagination. Or maybe you have really started to see with self-awareness the way a particular character trait or an experience you've had or a giftedness that you carry has positioned you to benefit others. Whatever the case, maybe today you can at least give yourself permission to imagine that those things might actually be intrinsic to the divine power that's at work inside you. And that God is so committed to partnering with you as you pursue those things well. The, the problem is, and I suppose that some of us have this experience here, that sometimes we actually pursue those dreams. And we tell other people about them, like Joseph does, and things don't go as planned. And like Joseph, we realize that in all of our dreaming, we rarely see the full scope of just how things are going to unfold. I mean, I know that I did not have a clue that in my early 30s, how I worked in an ethnic church and I served with new Canadian migrants as I pursued a certification to teach English, how that would lead me to doctoral research on second generation immigrants and a career in the academy. I just didn't see it coming. And I know that I had no idea that my love of the scriptures when I was a kid, it would take me to the cities and beaches of California and to travel in Greece and Turkey, to grad studies in Vancouver, and now to a community where I can teach and think about the Bible in such a fulfilling way. And I, I'm not trying to tell my story as a way of presenting an overly optimistic view of how my dreams have played out. 
I've left out plenty of agonizing moments where I failed and I didn't get into the program I wanted to get into and where Darlene and I didn't know where we were supposed to go next. No, what what I'm trying to say is that just because we can't always see the details of our dream and the heartache that we will endure in it coming to us, it doesn't mean that the dream isn't meaningful and full of divine potential. Because maybe what you hear today as you listen to this story of Joseph is the memory of a dream that you buried a long time ago. Because maybe things didn't work out. And maybe like Joseph, you weren't wise in how you shared your dream with others. Your, your zeal, your excitement, it got the best of you. But maybe what you realize is that dream, even in this moment, it's still real. It's a thing. And like the mystery of this divine narrative that we're working through, where this kid got excited because of what he saw in his future, and even though he wasn't careful with his words and his family rejected him, we see that the story came and it carried him along nonetheless. Because sometimes we are careless and we are arrogant. Sometimes we're foolish Sometimes we speak our dreams when probably we should just carry them a little longer to ourselves. But this story is a reminder that even when we don't hold them well, God is still present in our dreams and moves toward them because they're a reflection of the beauty and the light that could only be divine. And so, this week then, If there's little that feels steady in your life, or perhaps you found a long-desired rhythm recently, either way, may you begin to trust God's faithful work in you regardless of place. And may you consider the ways that you might be careful in how you speak of others and to others, choosing words that are honest and offered so that all can thrive. And two, may you find the courage you need to pick up and dream again, to carry those things carefully and graciously into the newness that God's story brings to you. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, As we have prayed already, our hearts are open to you and our desires are known. And from all the places that we come from, we share this moment where you are present to us in a story that's both old and ancient, but one in which we are swept up in and we see ourselves in new ways. And we ask that you would help us in the searching of our lives, in the ways that we end up feeling far from you when things get crazy and when they get overwhelming. And we pray, would you teach us to know your faithfulness regardless of where we find ourselves? And we pray too that you would give us grace as we pick up Joseph's story and hold it to our own learning to watch our words and learning to tell the truth and being slower to speak perhaps, slower 
and rushing into our dreams. And if we have buried things that matter to us, that once burned bright and clear and now are just an ember, we ask that you would protect them and that you would give us courage to protect ourselves from the challenge of reaching for them. And we ask too that you would be our holy courage to take up dreams as direction, a sign of your great creative partnership with us in making all things new in the middle of everyday life. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.